Indonesia, Indonesia, I struggle with Zena, baby. Youth wanted a new era, 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 and topple the old regime. Youth wanted a new era, and topple the old regime. In Cairo, people of Tahrir Square pushed Mubarak to go. Spirit rising in the air quickly embraced in Cairo. People of Tahrir Square pushed Mubarak to go. People of Tahrir Square pushed Mubarak to go. go, 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 go. It started in Tunisia, in Tunisia. Struggle with Zena, baby. Youth wanted a new era, 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 and topple the old regime. Youth wanted a new era, and topple the old regime. So, welcome back to the second episode of. The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. We were just opening with a uh, cut entitled It Started in Tunisia by um, Moali Lech, the Amazir or Berber songster and musician from Algeria, now living out on the uh, west coast of the United States. I believe he's based in Portland, Oregon these days. And uh, that was his, uh, and he goes back to um, Algeria uh, to cut a record with his old, with his old buds in the, uh, in the Kabylia region of um, uh, northeastern Algeria, the, 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 the Berber region and the mountains in the east of the country, um, every couple of years. And that was the one which he recorded back in, um, back in that heavy year of um, 2011 entitled when the dust settles was the name of uh, was the name of the album and uh, that's the best song on it it started in tunisia of course a a uh, reference to um the arab revolution and uh, the the greater revolution of the uh, of the middle east and the greater utopian moment that was sweeping the entire planet back in um, back in the year 2011 hard to believe it was 7 years ago now with uh, protests breaking out all over the world against, uh, particularly in the Arab world, against these entrenched dictatorships. So, of course, in, the, um, in that song, he was uh, representing the uh, pro-democracy movements, which emerged in uh, Tunisia and um, then in Egypt. And uh, in both of those cases, bringing down entrenched dictatorships, which had been in powers for decades. Um, ultimately, from uh, the perspective of hindsight, seven years later, it worked out better in Tunisia than it did in Egypt. That's for sure. But the flame spread from there to uh, other countries around the Arab world. And what we're going to be speaking about tonight is Syria. And of course, Syria, one of the most horrific and tragic situations on the planet right now. And yet at the same time, the uh, utopian spirit which animated the initial thrust 
of the um, of the revolution in Syria way back in 2011 is still alive. Contrary to what you would glean from a, uh, a mere cursory review of the horrific headlines from Syria, the utopian spirit of the Syrian revolution from 2011, elements of it are still surviving in spite of everything, in spite of the horrific levels of violence, in spite of um, utterly, utterly ruthless armed actors having um, seemingly eclipsed pro-democracy movements and, um, and, and popular upswell from the, uh, for, for at least from the headlines. Uh, in fact, elements of those movements continue to survive even now. And I'm going to start by talking about the situation which has been in the news this week, that at the town of Afrin in northern Syria, which um, for the past couple of years has been under the control of the, um, the revolutionary Kurdish movement in Syria's north, a part of the um, utopian experiment of uh, what they call Rojava, which is the traditional Kurdish name for the for that region of northern Syria. And the Kurds of Syria, um, and also of uh, Iraq and of Turkey and, and Iran, um, similar to uh, the Berbers of, um, of Algeria and of Libya, uh, they were, they're not actually a, um, they're not an Arab people. They're uh, an ethnic minority within an Arab-majority country, but they, uh, as a part of that same revolutionary upsurge of 2011, they began to demand their uh, rights for uh, regional autonomy and, um, uh, and expression of their own culture and a dignified place in society. And the, um, contrary to a lot of the um, calumnies which are um, heard against the Rojava Kurds, they are not separatists. In fact, they have um, explicitly been calling for a federal decentralized structure for a united, democratic, secular Syrian state in which they will have uh, their own regional autonomy, but ultimately as a part of a unified Syria. Um, and uh, they, um, when I say utopian experiment, the uh, Rojava Kurds are actually very um, influenced by anarchism, and uh, including by the ideas of Murray Bookchin, the um, uh, famous uh, eco-anarchist of uh, Vermont who died about 10 years ago. Uh, they're uh, trying to put in place experiments in um, direct grassroots democracy, people governing from the bottom up rather from the top down, neighborhood councils, and um, a, a real sort of a participatory uh, radical grassroots democracy they're trying to put in place. Uh, they are um, radically secular, radically feminist, radically ecologist, in contrary to the, uh, in, in contrast to uh, the totalitarian ideologies of, um, of uh, ISIS, the Islamic State, and political Islam, which have been which have been dominating the headlines from that region. And, of course, they very, very heroically um, fought back the uh, Islamic State. They fought back ISIS when um, ISIS tried to take over their territory, uh, where they've established their autonomous zone beginning in, um, beginning in 2014. And uh, they won a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, won a lot of support and inspired a lot of inspiration from folks around the world, particularly their uh, their women's militia, who uh, you know which which took up arms to defend their territory from you know these the completely you know ultra reactionary even genocidal forces of ISIS, and uh, now they're um, 
autonomous zone is coming under attack, not from ISIS, but from Turkey, from uh, the United States' own NATO ally. And the United States had actually been supporting, you know, finally, after the... um, after the Rojava Kurds had made some success in beating back ISIS, they actually restarted receiving, receiving aid from the Pentagon to, uh, to fight ISIS, as well as from Russia. And uh, now it seems that both of those um, great powers are um, selling them down the river as uh, finally Turkey is intervening in northern Syria, particularly attacking the enclave of Afrin. And um, Afrin has changed hands repeatedly over the course of the past couple of years. It has variously been under the control of ISIS, been under, under the control of factions loyal to the Free Syrian Army, and um, for the past um, several months has been under the control of, um, of the Rojava Kurds. And uh, there's in each of these, um, you know, uh, change of hands, have been, of course, occasioned by a lot of bloodshed, and there's been human rights abuses on all sides, which there does need to be some accounting for. I don't have a you know completely uh, utopian view of the of the situation there. It's uh, you know we have to be very realistic. Bad things happen in war, but the particularly tragic element of the situation is how revolutionary forces are being um, are being uh, pitted against each other now. Turkey is intervening now because they fear any kind of autonomy for the Kurds in Syria because they fear that it is going to set an example for the Kurds within their own territory. And they see the, um, the Rojava Kurds merely as an extension of the, uh, the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is the, the, uh, the Kurdish rebel group which is active within Syrian territory. And it's true that they are ideologically allied, so to speak, the Rojava Kurds and the PKK. Um, <clears throat> but the PKK as also uh, pursuant to um, peace accords, which were signed a few years back, the PKK has also renounced separatism and is actually calling for um, uh, local autonomy for the Kurdish peoples within Turkey. And in fact, it's been the intransigence of the, um, of the Kurdish state under uh, President Erdogan, which has um, uh, intransigent in terms of refusing to to honor the peace accords which were worked out with the PKK, which has led to them taking up arms again. So, uh, okay, so Turkey is intervening to try to, um, initially, to try to take Afrin. We fear that if they succeed in doing so, this could be uh, the beginning of a more general assault on the entire uh, Kurdish autonomous zone of, um, of Rojava. And again, they seem to be getting away with it, um, despite the fact that both the United States and Russia had been backing the Rojava Kurds to fight ISIS. Uh, in particular, the United States had been backing them as a part of the uh, so-called Syrian Defense Forces. Um, the central pillar of the Syrian Defense Forces was the, uh, the Kurdish militia, the YPG, the um, People's Defense Forces, which um, had joined with um, with other sort of secular-minded um, militias, some Kurdish, some Arab, in northern Syria to uh, to beat back ISIS, and they were uh, being directly receiving aid from uh, from the Pentagon in order to do so. Um, it's you know certainly a an absurd political irony, almost to the point of being surreal, that um, Trump's America was backing a, a radical left, anarchist-influenced movement in northern Syria, 
But uh, the reason this came to pass is that the the the, the, the Rojava Kurds had proved themselves to be the most effective fighting force on the ground against ISIS. And finally, the, uh, the Pentagon sort of realized that that was their best bet in order, to, uh, in order to beat back ISIS. And they succeeded in beating back ISIS, and uh, the ISIS de facto capital of Raqqa um, fell just a couple, of, um, a couple of months ago. And there was this question, which we've been wondering for a long time, as to whether... Um, you know, the, uh, the U.S. and Russia, for that matter, would continue to, um, to back the Rojava Kurds after the fall of ISIS. And a lot of, um, you know, uh, more cynical observers were thinking, no, they're obviously going to be betrayed and thrown overboard because that's always what happens to the Kurds. They're used by the great powers when it's convenient, and then they're thrown overboard. And uh, sure enough, it appears that that may be what, in, da- in fact, is happening now and people around the world have been trying to raise a voice in defense of um, in defense of Afrin and in defense of um, in defense of Rojava so but the um, the particularly tragic element of the situation is that Turkey is being backed in its assault on Afrin now by elements of the free Syrian army because Turkey has traditionally been the sponsor of the free Syrian army and um, there are elements of the Free Syrian Army which, as much as they hate the uh, genocidal dictatorship of Bashar Assad, um, they also share in some of the Arab nationalist assumptions of that dictatorship, and they're completely hostile to the notion of Kurdish autonomy, completely hostile to um, the notion of a, um, a decentralized or federalist solution to Syria. And they want to keep it, you know, a, um, a centralized Arab nationalist state. So um, the, F- the FSA at times, mind you, has been allied or elements of the FSA have at times been allied with the um, with the Rojava Kurds against their mutual enemy of ISIS. But um, now elements of the FSA have joined with Turkey in um, launching a military assault on the Rojava Kurds at um at Afrin. So, you know, elements which um, both oppose the dictatorship of Bashar Assad and elements which um, both ostensibly want to see a, um, a democratic future for Syria are now being pitted against each other. And there really is, this is what, you know, what makes this, this game that the great powers are playing here of, you know, manipulating factions on the ground in Syria. What makes it so dangerous is that there is really the threat now that um, they're of an actual um, Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria. And if this this turns out to be the sequel to the war against ISIS, that will have made, um, you know, the victory against ISIS uh, really a ferric victory. And uh, that would be a very, very, very tragic outcome. And uh, this is something which we really all need to uh, work to avoid at, um, uh, you know, with, with, with great urgency... So, um, and, you know, I mean, we here in the United States, well, I mean, some people would argue there's not much that we can do, but um, I argue otherwise. Our government is deeply involved in the situation in northern Syria, and uh, we have responsibilities in, in addition to, you know, just the basic responsibilities of human solidarity. People in uh, northern Syria are fighting for the same things which we supposedly are fighting for here in the United States, like popular democracy and women's rights and popular empowerment against um, dictatorships. In their case, you know, the dictatorships of, of 
the actual dictatorships of um, Bashar Assad and of ISIS. And I would argue that um, uh, Erdogan in Turkey is at least a wannabe dictator, rapidly consolidating a dictatorship. And here in the United States, we're facing Donald Trump, who is also attempting to consolidate a dictatorship, I think is pretty clear. So basic human solidarity demands that um, we try to do what we can to at least to hone our own analysis and uh, try to, you know, at least move the, uh, the, 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 the debate on cyberspace and in international fora, such as the Internet, um, in the right direction. And um, the, um, unfortunately, you know, the perception on both sides of this divide between um, the Rojava Kurds and the FSA it has become extremely jaundiced. There's the uh, a, lot, a lot of the people who support the Rojava Kurds are dismissing the uh, the, the the other Syrian rebels, the Arab-led Syrian rebels in the um, in the Free Syrian Army, dismissing them all as jihadists. And a lot of people, in turn, who support the general Syrian revolution, the Arab-led factions in the Free Syrian Army, and so on, are dismissing the. Um, the Rojava Kurds as Stalinists and not recognizing that uh, the PKK does in fact, you know, have a Stalinist past, but I hasten to emphasize that that's the past and um, that they've uh, sort of moved beyond those politics and been moving in more of a democratic direction, at least for the past 10 years or so. And uh, the Rojava Kurds are not even the PKK, right? So what they've been attempting to, um, to, the experiment that they've been attempting to put in place in Rojava is not Stalinist, but on the contrary, in fact, it's based on um, on notions of, of popular democracy and rule from above, rather r- rule from below, rather than rule from above. Power flowing from the bottom up, rather than from the top down. So, um, again, all the time that I that that, that Afrin has changed hands, and in the um, in the general fighting in northern Syria. Uh, You know, yeah, there have been atrocities which have been committed by all sides and there have been claims against the uh, the Rojava Kurds that they have engaged in, quote unquote, ethnic cleansing against against um, Arab villagers. And they have denied this. They have claimed that, you know, at worst, in certain occasions, they have had to um, temporarily relocate um, Arab villagers who were um, uh, believed to have been collaborating with ISIS when they took uh, territory which had been uh, taken from ISIS in order to uh, prevent sabotage and so on. Um, uh, Amnesty International is, uh, and, you know, Human Rights Watch and so on, they've um, been a little bit skeptical about um, the claims that they've only engaged in behavior which was justified under the wars of law. So there needs to be an accounting about all of this. Like I say, you know, it's been a very, very bloody situation and, um, you know, bad things happen in war. War sucks. I'm not the kind of guy to glorify war. War, at the very, very best, is uh, sometimes a necessity when it is forced upon you, when um, ISIS is coming to burn down your village, or um, you know the, the forces of um, Bashar Assad are, um, are coming to massacre you. So um, there needs to be an accounting on the abuses which have been committed on both sides. So uh, then we have to talk about... Um, about the the area which is actually controlled by uh, by the by the FSA aligned Syrian rebels, um, and particularly I want to talk about Idlib because there's been a lot in the in the news recently 
about, you know, in the past uh, week or so since Turkey launched its offensive on Afrin. There's been a lot in the news about Afrin. There's been a lot less in the news about Idlib. And Idlib is also coming under attack, not from, uh, you know, just, just as uh, Afrin is coming under attack from, from Turkey and um, its allied forces in some of the FSA factions which are collaborating with Turkey, Idlib has been coming under attack from the Bashar Assad regime and its imperial sponsor, Russia. And uh, uh, particularly, there's been, uh, you know, just as we saw a year ago in Aleppo, when uh, the city of Aleppo was um, virtually bombed into, into smithereens for, um, for weeks and weeks and weeks um, under the assault of the Bashar regime and Russia. And finally, I think it was just about a year ago, a deal was worked out whereby um, the city, people who wanted to leave the city could evacuate to Idlib before the, uh, the forces of the Bashar regime took it over. And we knew that this was only a temporary reprieve for, from, uh, from that bombardment because next the uh, regime was going to attack Idlib, which was then you know, rebel-controlled and continues to be rebel-controlled. And sure enough, that's what's happening now. So now Idlib is being massively bombed by, uh, by Russia and by the Assad regime. And uh, the people in Idlib also deserve our support, just like the people in Afrin do. And unfortunately, there is very, very little overlap between the people who are calling for solidarity with Afrin and the people who are calling for solidarity with Idlib. And, you know, there is this perception that uh, all of the, um, the rebel forces which are in control in Idlib and are reaching uh, and are um, resisting the advance of the Assad regime forces there are all jihadists. And it's true that many of the, um, of the militias, the armed uh, militias which are in control of Idlib, are conservative Islamists. And some of them you could call jihadists. But that's not the whole picture. Because to get back to what we were, uh, to what we were opening with about the initial spirit of the Arab Revolution still being alive in spite of of everything in Syria today. In addition to these um, armed militias, which are um, active in Idlib, the towns in Idlib, many of the towns and villages in Idlib are under the control of autonomous councils, which are a part of the um, the local coordinating committees, as they're called, which were the, uh, the, the civilian grassroots popular democratic forces which began the Syrian revolution way, way back in March of 2011 and in spite of everything are still alive today. And their sensibilities are pro-democratic. Their sensibilities are secularist. And they, in fact, have been resisting the jihadist forces. They're ready to resist the Assad regime as, as, as they started out doing way back in 2011 when finally, you know, uh, the regime was driven out of Idlib by the popular uprising. But um, they have also been resisting, you know, the jihadist factions and the Qaeda-aligned factions which, are, uh, which have been trying to seize control of these towns and villages in Idlib as well, actually using tactics of nonviolent resistance to assert their rights to, um, to govern their own territory. And they've actually been holding, uh, there's been extremely inspiring cases in, um, in towns and villages in Idlib of uh, people actually, you know, engaging in what we would call nonviolent civil disobedience and engaging in, um, in you know, popular uh, democratic nonviolent uprisings to assert their right to govern their own towns and to um, 
and to uh, kick out the, uh, you know, the jihadist and Qaedaist forces. So um, these elements are still there in Idlib too. And guess what? The bombs of Assad's warplanes and Putin's warplanes don't discriminate. And it isn't just the, um, it, it isn't just these uh, jihadist militias which are being bombed, but it's the civilian populace of Idlib which are being bombed as well. Many of which are involved in these, um, in these radically democratic uh, autonomous councils. So, I mean, here you have the movement in Rojava, the uh, the Kurdish autonomous movement in Rojava is, you know, very much based on this on this notion of council democracy, and so is uh, the you know um, the the Arab revolutionary um, uh, movement in. Um, in, in Idlib as well, also being, uh, you know, also sort of rooted in this notion of council-based democracy. So where is the solidarity between these, uh, these two movements? Obviously, they're being pitted against each other in the great power game between, um, between uh, you know, Turkey, which has been backing elements of the FSA and the Arab revolutionaries and Russia, which has been, uh, which has been backing elements of, uh, of the Kurds and the, and the uh, Rojava revolutionaries. They've been pitted against each other. But that is tragic. And that is something which we here with a little bit of breathing space in, uh, you know, outside of Syria, uh, where we aren't under immediate bombardment. You know, this is where we should... Um, be able to, uh, with a little bit of distance, be able to view the situation with uh, a, a degree more nuance. And perhaps this is a privilege on our part because there aren't bombs falling on our heads and we aren't under, uh, under immediate attack. But uh, this is going to, what we can be doing to try to nudge the debate in the right direction is pointing out the commonalities between the movement in Idlib and the movement in Rojava and doing what we can to, um, to try to, to rebuild a sense of solidarity between the Arab Revolution and the Kurdish Revolution and, um, and hopefully you know, contributing to an atmosphere where they can begin to work out their differences and avoid an Arab-Kurdish civil war, which would be the absolute worst, most disastrous outcome of what's going on right now, and begin once again to get the revolution back on track and to try to de-escalate the civil war and to get the revolution which started in March of 2011 back on track and to fight for a democratic secular future for Syria and uh, they're going to have to work out you know their differences in terms of you know the elements which want um, a more of a centralized state around Damascus and the Kurds who want more of a, uh, you know, of, of, a, of a decentralized federal solution, that's something which they're going to have to work out. But at a minimum, one hopes that we can contribute to an atmosphere where they'll be able to unify against the Assad dictatorship and unify against the imperialist powers which are intervening and unify against the jihadist elements and unify against ISIS and so on and the Qaedaist elements. And... I mean, there's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that one of the more um, dispiriting things which I've read recently is that elements of the, uh, you know, in, in, in Rojava now, of the leadership in Rojava are actually calling for the, uh, the Assad regime to defend its borders and jump into the fray in Afrin against the Turkish intervention. And one understands why they're doing this, because they're desperate, they're under, they're under immediate attack, and they're going to take their allies where they can find them. It's still... Um, 
it's still rather dispiriting to see them, you know, appealing to the genocidal regime of Bashar Assad for protection, much in the same way that it's dispiriting that elements of the FSA have made their um, uh, have made some kind of an alliance with the um, with the wannabe dictator Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his um, uh, imperialist aggression in northern Syria. So this is stuff that they're all going to have to work out, and it's not going to be easy. But the question is, what can we here in the outside world do to try to nudge things a little bit in the right direction? Well, I was heartened and yet frustrated to see that there was a statement in, um, in solidarity with Afrin, which was signed by um, some big names on the left, including Noam Chomsky and, um, and David Graeber and Debbie Bookchin, who is the daughter of Murray Bookchin. Uh, and I wholeheartedly support this statement in, um, in solidarity with Afrin and calling for uh, international pressure to call off the Turkish aggression against Afrin. I only wish that there would be a similar statement in solidarity with Idlib, in, so, in solidarity with the autonomous councils, which, 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 which control many towns and villages in Idlib, and, um, and, and calling on the international, pre- uh, international community to pressure Russia, to pressure Putin, and to pressure the Bashar Assad regime to call off its aggression in Idlib. When that starts to happen, when I see Noam Chomsky and, um, and David Graeber and Debbie Bookchin not only signing a statement in support of Afrin, but also signing a statement in support of Idlib. Then I will have some hope that things are moving in the right direction. So um, that's what I'm fighting for here in uh, New York City, where I am ranting from at this very moment. That, to me, would begin to be a counter vortex, where we begin to generate some... uh, uh, energy moving in the other direction, away from the the vortex of totalitarianism, whether of the jihadist or of Assad or of Erdogan or of Trump, and away from the vortex of Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria and into the counter-vortex in the other direction towards democracy, towards secularism, towards local autonomy, towards rights for minorities, rights for women, and towards peace. So I appeal to everyone who is listening, spread the word about Afrin, spread the word about Idlib, join the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org and rant on you next time. I'm Bill Weinger.
Struggle with Zainab. 